Hey everyone. Today we bring you a very special guest, a good friend of ours, Nikolaus from Kite. He is co-founder and CEO at the mobility company that is called Kite. And what they're doing is they help everyone to access rental cars with the simplicity of using Uber. He will tell you much more in the episode, but a couple of more facts about him. He studied at Stanford and TU Munich. He worked at Uber for some time before founding the company and Kite has recently raised $9 million for their expansion and they have offices in San Francisco and in Munich. We talk about everything from how he as a founder copes with stress and what he does to actually stay energized. We talk about AI and machine learning and how they use it at Kite. And we talk about mobility. We talk about many, many different things about startups, about hiring, and it was a great conversation. So I think you'll enjoy it. And I'll hope that you have a good time, have a good day and listen in again. Hey everyone, welcome back. Mike and Max are here and we have a very special guest today. We have Nick, one of the co-founders of Kite. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, sunny weather in San Francisco, um, nothing to complain about. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Max, how are you doing? Fantastic. Uh, Wednesday Wednesday evening, Wednesday morning in San Francisco. So it's uh, great, great to meet you, and Nick. I'm super excited to go a bit deeper into your story, personal story, but also, of course, learn a bit more about how you approached Kite and where you are right now. So uh, super glad to meet and, and have the conversation. Yeah, Nick, why don't you just start by giving us a very brief introduction into who you are, what you're currently doing, and then we can jump off from there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, um, very nice um, to, 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 to be in the podcast here. Um, I'm Nicholas. Um, I'm originally from Munich, um, went there to, to high school, went there also to undergrad studies, um, did engineering science, which was a mixture between computer science, electrical engineering and mechanical engineering. So I'm an engineer by training. Um, was then um, did, did then my master's studies at Stanford University in the US, um, a two years master program was totally infected by all the machine learning and um, artificial intelligence hype around, um, yeah, when was that? Around six years ago, um, really jumped into a lot of these, um, yeah, at that time, very, very kind of um, hot hot technologies, um, took all the kind of courses from these famous Stanford professors, which was a very, very fun and exciting time. Um, and then I, yeah, I was working for then two years um, at Uber in the sensing and perception team, um, where I was essentially building um, different types of machine learning applications for yeah the, the Uber platform. So it was about essentially making your blue dot in the Uber app pretty much um, be more accurate um, or yeah, helping with um, driver safety, helping with um, risk, um, um, all types of different basically um, topics that involve location and sensor data. Um, really, really crazy time. Um, I mean, I started with when when Uber was essentially um, um, yeah led by Travis Kalanick, um, and then my in the, the second year there, um, that was the the year then under the, or the first year uh, with Dara, the, the new CEO. 
so yeah, from all kind of different um, different angles, it was it was pretty crazy. Um, the, the kind of everybody hated Uber during that time, um, but but uh, yeah, lots of lots of kind of war stories for that um, from that time. And then yeah, um, a little bit more than two years ago, we started Kite um, with uh, two my two co-founders are Francesco, who I know from from undergrad studies in Munich. Actually, he was then a product manager at BMW. And then Ludwig, my my other co-founder, and he's a Berkeley MBA. We met each other here. We are well, his at that time his fiance, now his wife, um, and and yeah, and then and then um, that was the, the the beginning of the kite story. Um, yeah, that was um, that was that was very briefly about myself. Um, yeah, I do I do other things for fun. I love surfing. I love spearfishing. I love skiing. I love a lot of things which have to do with nature and outdoors and adventures. Um, that's that's a little bit about myself. Kite surfing, or it would fit to the name, right, of your startup, or is something else? Other surfing? <laughs> no, it's uh, it's essentially normal, normal surfing, wave surfing. No, no, no kites. Um, yeah, just just very very. Very happy to dig into the adventures later, but for now, can you tell us a bit more about what Kite is actually doing? Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, Kite. We always say kite is the best way to rent a car, and it's essentially we always say we're bringing the Uber magic into the rental car experience for the consumer, right? So pretty much how it works for the consumer is really if you want to rent a car for like a day or a couple of days, you press a button in our app and uh, the car gets delivered to your door. You um, receive the key from one of our delivery drivers. Um, we call them kite surfers. You sign your rental agreement and you uh, take um, off on your trip. And that's really that that experience where, yeah, still until that day, um, people always tell us, oh yeah, it exactly feels like the first time in an Uber, the first time in a Lyft. Um, another way of like describing the business from a consumer perspective is always, yeah, we're like kind of DoorDash or Uber Eats or, or um, for the for the kind of European audience, kind of, um, yeah, Deliveroo or like Foodora, but just not for food, but actually for vehicles. Um, and um, the other piece about the business kind of more, I guess, like hidden under the hood is, but like um, essentially we're a marketplace. So we we combine essentially these these renters with um, vehicle suppliers on the other side, right? So we partner with professional fleets on the other side, which are mainly rental car companies out there that just have tons of vehicles and um, that are really, really good in owning, um, buying, selling these assets. And we're essentially the platform that facilitates the rental transaction between the renters and the the, these rental car companies, right? So we don't own any assets. We partner with these companies, and we're the yeah, we're the technology and logistics platform that um, facilitates these these rentals and the deliveries, and um, do all of all of that um, that on top. Super interesting. Um, you already, I think you have a great explanation of what the business does and 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 what it how it works and and how it works for the end user and what the perceived value is for the end user. I would love to. Kind of take a step back because uh, we have a lot of people in the audience that potentially want to found startups or have found startups and are on the way to to build product market fit or on on the pathway uh, to scale. Uh, and I would I would love to know how did you identify the problem at first, but what did you also do to validate the problem at first hand? Because a lot of people are um, in, in in this kind of section where they have a lot of ideas and they see existing problems, but it's often hard to validate it and understand if that's an actual problem, whether we think it's a problem. How did you make that first kind of step into 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 the validation part? Yeah, totally. So I mean, I think first of all, right, like the the kind of starting starting kite was definitely not a straightforward path, um, and it was like very I would say it was very nonlinear, and um, there was actually another. Um, 
yeah, another um, idea project, which which uh, my my two co-founders and I, which we which we did for a couple of months before, um, and it was essentially um, it was essentially a loyalty program for transportation, kind of like um, it's like something like miles and more, um, but but actually for for mobility providers, which which was actually. Um, I mean, I still think, um, yeah, you can build a business out of that. It's, it's, it was, um, it was not a bad idea, um, but it, uh, it turned out actually like after that validation phase, um, it was not, it was not really the one thing where we really believe you can actually really build an, a very big and exciting business around. And, and, I mean, there was a point where we didn't we didn't believe in the kind of big big and exciting story around that anymore. And so so it was yeah it was not a it was not not a very straightforward path. But so basically that that gave us a lot of time I would say to kind of be in the general transportation field, right? And like we looked at all kind of different um, mobility solutions out there, all kind of different offerings. And I think for Kite ultimately what it came down to were kind of I would say kind of three things. First of all, it was really kind of a very obvious consumer problem for us where we intrinsically just believed in it. And it was like, okay, we ourselves, we just feel the value add for us as consumers. And, and I think that was that was very powerful for us. Um, the second thing I would say was just this, I mean, ultimately, I mean, myself at Uber, but also my, my two co-founders, I mean, we were we were in the transportation field before, right? Like with BMW, and then my third co-founder was um, doing essentially OEM strategies for McKinsey before, and I was building technology for Uber, and so it was always about essentially building or like like I was always geeking out about essentially building things that make the physical world, the real world, kind of smarter, more efficient, um, more intelligent, and so I think that 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 type of thing okay like how can we make the physical world smarter and more intelligent that was always kind of like a thing that that was very kind of fascinating i could i could have geeked out over these things um over like a long time so that was i think it was just like an interesting problem i think to tackle and then i think the third thing was really that um we like it i think we we just like realized at some point like okay yeah it if it works if kite really works and um then then it 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 has the potential to be pretty big. And, and I think, I think it's the thing where like, I, I mean, a lot of people, I think they, they try to kind of build or pitch businesses that kind of um, fall into this kind of venture category without kind of knowing why they really want to do it. And, and I mean, personally, I mean, I think it's, it's totally admirable to really build kind of a, a bootstrapped um, self-funded business without venture capital um, that, um, but, but I think, I think for us, it was kind of, we really realized we actually we really want to build something that 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 I think not necessarily is venture fundable, but more has this potential of like okay, if we want to work on that for a couple of years, I mean for 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 10, 15 years, I like we just want to have this kind of mandate to to um to really hire the best people and to bring the best people on board and and to just build build these amazing strong teams. And I think at some point we just realized in order to do that, you just kind of need to do something which has the potential at least to become really, really big because otherwise the, 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 the pie can never be become big enough to basically, yeah, distribute to all these really, really smart people that you actually want to hire. Right. And so, and that's almost like, and, and then the, the result is almost like, okay, then that's a company which kind of falls into this kind of venture category. Right. So, so it's, it's kind of this, I, I would say it's kind of this observation where you, you, we, we started with kind of the, the, what, what type of business do we want to build? And then, and then the result was kind of, okay, it kind of actually has to be a venture fundable business. Um, and so, so that, that, that was, I think, and that was ultimately there for Kite and it was not there for the, the, the kind of project that we had before. Um, so, so yeah, I would say these, these are some of the aspects I would say that, that went into the, 
the the process here um if um yeah did, did i answer the question i'm, I'm not 100 sure yeah I, I think we we definitely get a, a very good understanding and also learn some additional points first of all i think like kite is one of these ideas that i heard and i've never thought about them like directly before but when i heard them it was such a no-brainer to me it, because I love convenience in almost every possible way. And I don't want to go to the rental car agency. And I had, I had to deal with a lot of rental cars, especially when I was doing freelance projects during my college years to like pay for everything, because then you would usually drive to a client with a rental car, but then always the problem was getting to the rental car agency and back from the rental car agency. If I just had an app then could order the, car to my that, that just sounds amazing i have a couple of questions um on the on a couple of details of the product and would, would then like to go back to like scaling and hiring but first of all how much more expensive is it for a consumer to book a car through kite versus a traditional rental car agency yeah, it's a, it's a super valid question. It's actually it's actually not more expensive at all, and and um, I, I can tell why. Um, so so in, in general, we're really we're like including the delivery fee, which which we I mean we kind of separate from the from the day fee per per rental day, but including even including that fee, um, we're really at the pri same price point than essentially the, the the usual kind of offerings out there from from the big or the small brands. And and the reason is because we literally take cost out of the system, right? I mean we essentially get rid of all of the kind of um, staff and branch costs that are sometimes actually pretty expensive, um, both at the airports, but also kind of in downtown locations, right? So our cars are actually located in these really kind of cheap, scrappy, we call them kind of dark parking spots in, in urban areas, right? Like super cheap real estate. Um, and then obviously they're, they're kind of, right? Like there's there's no kind of staff, there's no counter that, that actually needs to do all of that. So in, in, in another way, we're kind of transforming basically capital expenses into kind of operating expenses with the delivery, right? And so the, the, the other analogy with which I always bring there is kind of the, I mean, the, the kind of cloud kitchens out there, right? Like, which, um, I mean, in the US, people are definitely familiar with that. It's also kind of, I mean, Travis has like, Travis Kalanick has one of these businesses and there are a bunch of others out there. I mean, Reef Technologies um, in Europe, there are also some others out there, um, but, but really essentially getting rid of, um, getting rid of some costs and replacing that with essentially much more flexible operating delivery costs. That's the kind of core idea and, and why you can actually really take pretty much cost out of the system, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah definitely. It sounds very operations heavy, what you're doing, right? So you probably have a lot of ops nightmares and a couple of wartime stories to tell there, but maybe just lead us through how you actually started with the very first car. Like, did you drive it to the customer yourself? Did you have an external people, uh, an external person do it? Like, what was the initial version of Kite? Yeah, totally. Um, I think that that's there are already pretty pretty accurate points in there. What what you mentioned, um, totally. I mean, we rented essentially cars at a rental car um station just ourselves on our name, and then uh, yeah, we had a super scrappy kind of web form where people could essentially book um. Um, yeah, like like basically request a, a car and request it to a certain uh, delivery location, um, and then I think pretty pretty quickly we built some sort of payment thing around there with I think first Shopify and then and then Stripe pretty quickly, um, and 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 then we we 
pretty much put the, the renter's name as an additional driver on the rental agreement with the rental car facility, which was kind of a nightmare because we always had to convince them that um, the, the person actually doesn't need to come in, right? Like usually they actually want you to kind of show, even for a second driver, they want them to show the driver's license in the rental car facility. So it was always a crazy kind of uh, co convincing um, strategy that, that we had to pull off there and, and kind of uh, email driver's license around. Um, so that, that was literally the, the kind of like V1 um, that's, that, that we put out there. Yeah. And, and yeah, to you're totally right. Like there's a lot of crazy ops war stories. Just because of the, uh, the operational part. And I, and I love the story. It reminds like Mike and I, we had an episode where we talked about the early Airbnb story. Um, and it reminds me a bit on kind of how you approached it while as uh, taking the, the no scale approach and just renting your own car and then finding a way to get it to the customer and to the user. Um, how did you, how did you manage to kind of acquire the first users that were then your first customers, especially because it was like, there was this intersection of you actually renting it from the agency itself. How did you get them? Of course you built the kind of the, the, the first website, the first landing page, but what was the approach? Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of first users, I mean, we definitely had kind of our, I would say, yeah, friends, international crew in San Francisco um, that, I mean, none of them had cars. And so it was, that, that was, an, that was, I would say, kind of a easy, forgiving kind of audience to test with, but they definitely needed cars like during weekends or to go down to meetings to Palo Alto or so. So that was, that was, that was, um, that was easy, I would say. Um, but then kind of obviously like the, the interesting piece is then when you actually really attract new users that haven't heard of you, right? And like, can you actually establish that kind of trust with, with that segment? Um, and, and, and that was, um, yeah, that, that was definitely much more interesting. It was, it was actually a lot of kind of, it was a lot of kind of street um, interviews. It was kind of really asking kind of people in, in kind of like a little like, yeah, tourist destinations in San Francisco or like on the street, um, kind of Union Square, or also just literally in front of kind of existing rental car counters in San Francisco when there was a big line. Um, to, and like, hey, like, do you actually really want to have that shitty experience or do you kind of want to um, try it out with us? Um, um, and, and yeah, then th that, that was the that was the thing. And then and then obviously kind of in order to make it a little more kind of scalable and test around a little bit more, um, we we had some we had some kind of yeah ad experiments running pretty quickly. I mean, Francesco, my co-founder, he he's really I mean he's amazing and kind of testing, iterating on kind of these really early kind of channels. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's obviously, it's, it's cool how, how much you can kind of just like test there. Um, so, so the, these are, these are some of the elements I would say. Yeah. You said something earlier that I would like to re elaborate on. And you said you like the physical world, you like mobility because I think it connects the physical world and you, you want to make it the real world smarter and more efficient. And especially in the mobility sense, right? You can do a lot of things with software, but if you want to get from A to B, you still need interaction with the physical world, right? So maybe talk a bit about what kind of actual problem you are solving in the sense that like, what are your customers using your cars for? And then also how are you making the physical world more efficient with your, your current product? Yeah, totally. Um Exactly. To, to your point about, um, yeah, making the physical world smarter. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think personally, I mean, these are amongst the most interesting and, and also amongst the hardest problems out there, right? I mean, um, I, I do think like everything in the physical world, like 
has to do with essentially uncertainty, has to do with kind of um, physical pieces kind of um, breaking around, uh, like right, like it's um, it's 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 much harder to I think build these systems kind of in a robust and scalable way. Um, I mean, internally we also call these types of problems always kind of um, AI human systems in the loop, which um, and and I mean I, I also built these types of systems at Uber before, but but it's it's essentially really this interaction between um, the the human and the 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 the, the machine, right? Um, I mean, for example, I mean our like we're super bullish on our kind of like customer um, customer support and customer experience um, um, functions that are doing an amazing job in kind of guiding customers throughout um, throughout the process. But they're essentially supported by by obviously our AI and kind of our algorithms to really really make make these experiences um, great. And and I mean in, in terms of um, in, in terms of your questions of like okay what is what is really the what is what is really the the value and like I mean I, I I'm a big believer of kind of the Clayton Christensen jobs to be done theory out there about right like what is literally the kind of what is the job that a customer essentially hires my product to do right and and I think that that's kind of this core concept that a lot of our internal product development really thinks in that mindset right like it's it's not about building fancy features or so. But it's really about solving a customer, um, yeah, jobs to be done, um, and and I mean so the the thing is for us, but like there are there are, there are these there are really these very different kind of use cases that that um, people use our product for, and I mean they literally range from the kind of okay I want to go to Tao for the weekend um, or to Napa with a bunch of friends um, to kind of okay I want to do um, a business just like I have a business meeting down in Palo Alto or at Stanford and um, you know in, I, I don't want to use kind of five different Ubers during the day which would cost me like I don't know $160 but I like actually just for this one kind of day or maybe for these two days a week I actually need a car um, and then there's the kind of like okay running running different types of errands right and so in terms of the in terms of the use, I mean, in terms of the use case and jobs to be done, I would always describe it as kind of like we're for everything we're basically an Uber or Lyft trip is just um, not the right choice for when in in the city, right? Where like that is just um, like that doesn't really make sense because it it really focuses on the kind of short term trips, um, and where you where you still just like want your own car too, but like a car for, but you still obviously don't. I mean, you don't want to own a car, right? Like because because there are all these kind of hassles around that, right? So so another way of saying is like we we really give you all the benefits of um like like if you would own your car without actually like you having having to own it, right? And and so um yeah, but but it's this jobs to be done. It's super relevant and interesting for us because because there is not this one fits all use case and um these these really understanding deeply these jobs to be done for different customer segments, different personas, it's it's pretty critical um, for our business. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting because I mean, at the end, it's about getting from, from A to B, right? But there are these different kind of sub cases of people driving in different regions for different purposes uh, in different timings. I guess people sometimes rent it for a day, maybe others for a bit longer, but the actual experience ends up with you giving the car away at your place where you live or wherever you dropped it uh, and getting it where where you are. And I think that's um, that's the interesting part. And I, I want to kind of bring in your expertise to that because, I mean, you have been very interested in kind of the machine learning part of, um, of course, of, of the solution itself. And um, I wonder because we you just talked about the, 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 the feature overload that a lot of startups have where you forget the jobs to be done part and you just build features for the sake of building features. And of course, that's uh, that's a risk that a lot of startups have. But in, in that regard, especially when you think about machine learning, 
when did you actually start thinking about implementing machine learning into the actual process and how did you measure the impact of it? Because I think a lot of startups are going into that direction of kind of using AI to enhance your solution in any way. But when was the right moment for you to integrate it to make the, the actual experience for the job, uh, for the user and the jobs to be done faster, more efficient, better? When did you make the decision? And what was the impact of it? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, I think the, I mean, I think the potential and the opportunity to deploy really machine learning AI in our, in our stack, it's, it's immense. And it's, 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 I mean, there's the, the there's a lot of white space, but I, I don't, I mean, I think we're just like scratching the surface. I mean, first of all, right. Like I, I don't, I mean, we're not like, we're not like, I would say, right? like, I mean, 80% of our kind of services um, in, in our existing stack don't, don't use any, any sort of machine learning, right? And they're very kind of, um, yeah, like not, none of that at all. Um, I think the first thing, I mean, the, the, from an application level, the first thing where it just became very, very obvious that, okay, this is really something where we need to, where we need to really automate, um, where we really need to automate something and we really need to essentially um, yeah, like reduce human or manual time kind of spent on, on something. Um, it was, was just a very obvious one was literally just, um, is matching essentially our trips with our delivery drivers, right? It's, it's, I mean, it all started with like, um, something, something super, super, um, something, yeah, super manual. We're like literally like us. And then later on the, the, the operations team were matching individual drivers with individual trips. That was simply not scalable sometime anymore when we had kind of, um, um, yeah, like more than, yeah, let's say more than 20, 30 trips a day, it just became incredible, incredible time consuming. And like, in order to scale, then we would literally have to scale the number of people, which I think then really becomes a very kind of obvious sign that, okay, here, like, let's, let's, let's do something about that. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think the general philosophy in that is always like that we have internally in terms of developing these types of systems, human and the loop systems, machine learning systems is always kind of um, people processes um, product, right? Like that's kind of our philosophy. And that means basically that, okay, you start with people, right? Like you like initially everything is manual, everything is, and, and you literally just like throw people on, on a problem. Then you build processes out of it, right? So you really try to kind of understand what is actually the kind of sequence of steps that you need to do to, to basically um, resolve a task. And then when you have a well-defined process, you already get some kind of efficiencies out there. And sometimes the process step, you can actually live with that for like maybe a year or more, right? Because it, the process, if, if you have a process and a standard SOP or so, that, that can already be enough for something. Um, and then you, you, and then ultimately you build product out of it, right? And then ultimately that's where the real efficiency gain hopefully comes into place. Um, and, and, and then ultimately, right? Like with that particular example now, we 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 yeah we built a we built a non-convex optimization algorithm that actually um, yeah I mean we we wrote a little kind of internal paper around that um, I'm I'm super bullish on on like the 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 engineer that worked on that um, and and I mean he 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 did an amazing job and really really creating an incredible sophisticated system to to bring down these efficiencies and I mean it's amazing if you if you then shift that to production and you see that from kind of yeah. Um, that, that, yeah, basically from 100% manual matching, you really decrease it to like less than 5% of trips need to be manually matched. I mean, that's, that's an amazing gain, right? For, and at that point, um, that, that's how I would describe it. Yeah. 
but on the other side, I mean, maybe to add to that, right? Like there's so many other opportunities. I mean, in terms of dynamic pricing, in terms of the risk process, really about vetting renters um, and delivery drivers out there, where um, there's, I mean, there's there are very obvious opportunities to deploy machine learning, but I mean, pricing, it's an amazing example, but we're not really doing it yet. And so um, there's a lot of things where we're just scratching the surface, I would say. Yeah, and I think that's that's the opportunity. And I think that's uh, the interesting part, of course, with the, also your expertise and the expertise of the first people coming in that focus on building these models and, and kind of improving the actual product within on the backend side, more or less, uh, which is, of course, not directly user-facing in any way. Mike, do you want to kind of go into any technical areas, product areas, or should we uh, kind of take a loop? I, I have one or I have one or two follow-up questions. Maybe for everyone who's listening, can you quickly, without going too deep, because uh, we don't want to uh, scare anyone away, but just explain what the difference between a convex and a non-convex optimization algorithm is? Because I think it's it's especially important to understand why it's so like difficult to build one. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a really good technical question. Um, I mean, um, let, let, let me think for one moment how to really, how to really describe it in a, in an, in an easy way. I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I think the, the, like the, 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 the easiest way to describe it is probably really like in, in any sort of optimization problem, right? Like you're kind of, um, you're, you're defining some sort of reward function or right, like loss function. And you, you kind of want to, you want to find the parameters where that that reward or loss function is kind of, let's say, obtaining either maximum or minimum, let's just say a minimum, right? Like essentially if, if you if you kind of imagine kind of a two-dimensional um, uh, graph, right? Um, or a, a curve, um, you wanna, and, and you, you wanna essentially really find um, this, 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 this minimum where all of your parameters, for example, um, basically come together and and for example, really your you yeah you your your losses is 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 the least um for example right and in some in in any sort of like convex optimization problem um you're basically making or, or your your um yeah your 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 graph you can imagine has has a convex shape and you're essentially making sure that at any point on the graph if you basically take your derivative there out there. Or if you um, yeah if, if you basically look at that point on your graph, you always you, um, if um, if you then if you don't basically go into the right direction, basically downwards to your slope, um, then then you essentially achieve or like um, a, a, um, yeah obtain or like arrive at your minimum, right? Like with essentially a non-convex problem, um, you kind of essentially have these kind of local minimas, local maximas out there, and so basically at at any point you're not really sure. You're not really sure if actually when you take the derivative, if you follow basically the, the slope down your graph, that you actually arrive at that minimum. So it's it's just a much um, it's much it's a much more kind of complex and more difficult kind of um, way of of really um, or, or um, problem setting where you're just never sure whether you really hit the hit 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 essentially your target, right? And and so that just makes it um, you just need to deploy different tools, um, different kind of heuristics to kind of make sure you actually find hopefully. The, the the global maximum or your or um, your your envisioned global global maximum or minimum sorry I'm using that kind of in, interchangeable right now um, but but that's that's I would say the the kind of um, well I, I, that, that was not the best explanation but um, maybe it helped but but it was very it was very helpful I think the the gist of it to break it down in a very simple manner and I'm oversimplifying right now but according to what you just said for convex problems you know that there is like one best solution and you just know if you're going into the right direction, then that means that you definitely go into the optimal direction. 
But for the non-convex functions, it's much more complex. And even if you go into direction that is better, you don't know if it's the optimum. And that makes solving it much, much more complicated. And since the problem you are solving is so complex and there is like a lot of different like potential solutions, it's just more difficult in general to find the best solution. I think that's like, is it a, is it a fine assumption or like just generalization? Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, I think you, you explained it in a very beautiful way. I, I, I like it. And, and yeah, I think tying it back to the original problem, right? Like the, 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 the fundamental problem is essentially matching, let's say hundreds of trips a week to actually, um, yeah, like um, 50, 100 delivery drivers out there in like just one market, right? Like one city. It's, I mean, just by thinking about it, right? Like it has a lot of, it has a huge dimensionality and um, the, the, right, like building essentially these effective and efficient kind of schedules for these different delivery drivers, they're just, just by, by thinking about the different kind of permutations and, and possibilities that you can put in there, right? Like, I think it becomes very obvious that it's, it's not something which you can, yeah, where you can take one derivative and then you're done. No, like you, like you need to put a lot more kind of, um, yeah, brain, brain effort into that, into solving that, that type of complexity. Exactly. It reminds me a bit of the like good old example of the traveling salesman and uh, like optimizing this, but with more people and like with even more like things involved and variables involved. But let's switch away from the technical talk, which probably was very interesting to some people and uh, take a step back and go one level higher. I think the last product question I have is we talked a bit about being scrappy at the beginning. And then you talked about continuously improving the processes and at some point having an actual product there. One last thing on the product side that we are thinking a lot and that I think many founders are struggling with is how do you prioritize features? And I think it's one of these things where there are like 20 things that can be built. There are 50 fires burning. How do you allocate resources internally? Do you have a good framework? Uh, like what are your thoughts on it? Such a simple question with a lot of thoughts behind it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's one of these uh, kind of, yeah, holy grails. I mean, yeah, like we're... Um, <laughs> yeah, if you could tell me the solution, that would be very much appreciated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think that the, the definitely better better person in our team to really go really deep about the specific product aspect would really be my co-founder, Francesco, who like, um, yeah, does everything product related internally as us, but, but still kind of sharing a couple of thoughts. I mean, I think on a kind of not just maybe product level, but kind of company level, I mean, the way we essentially prioritize and, and kind of build roadmaps and, and kind of um, ultimately sprints, and, and I, I can come, come down to that, is that like we have, we essentially have kind of big kind of yearly company objectives. And as of now, I mean, we have on, on that side, we have, we have five company objectives, which, um, yeah, which are really kind of like, okay, these are the business objectives that we believe we need to, we need to, um, aim towards um, to, to essentially build a, build a massive business and get to the next stage of the business. Um, and, then, and then we use essentially an OKR framework kind of below that, that we refine on a basically like quarterly basis, right? And it's really about, okay, what are actually the kind of projects ultimately to, to essentially implement these objectives or that kind of drive towards these objectives. And then under these projects, there's essentially key results, right? So that's where the kind of objective and key results come into. Um, and these are really, these are, we basically have monthly key results. So basically, um, and everybody in, everybody in the company pretty much has 
two to three key results per month that basically pay into these projects and then ultimately these business objectives. Right? Like that's that's the general framework how we think about it. Um, and then and specifically now for product and engineering, we actually have we actually say, hey, we want people to spend around seventy to eighty percent on these K key K results, which are basically these these yeah big, big strategic initiatives that pay into the business objectives, and then twenty and thirty percent. Um, um, so I said, yeah, like 70 to 80% go into these KRs of basically, let's say, engineering capacity. And then 20 to 30% of engineering capacity actually goes, goes into weekly um, ad hoc sprints, which are kind of like the much more kind of finer, finer allocation of things. And here, the goal is we basically want product and also operations, right? Basically, the, the two customers of engineering essentially in the company are product and engineering, uh, sorry, product and operations for us. We basically want to give them kind of a, um, um, let's say, uh, uh, yeah, like a wild card um, set of engineering resources where they can just throw in things and that that these are basically kind of ad hoc things that come up, little kind of features, um, bugs, maintenance things on, on different kind of things um, where, where they can just throw that over to engineering and engineering basically commits kind of 20 to 30% of their time, just get that stuff done in a kind of like weekly cadence. So, so I would say we have these kind of different... Um, different, I would say, cadences and, and yeah, um, different frequencies of, of, of planning um, that kind of like work hand in hand together, right? Like we have the kind of yearly company objectives, we have the kind of um, monthly and quarterly kind of KR refinement that really kind of define, okay, what are, what are we working on kind of this month, next month, and we have some kind of refinement potential here. And then we have the kind of really like basically high high frequency kind of weekly things for kind of like all the little things that kind of come up during during the week and during the month. And um, so, so I mean, th this is kind of like our high level framework. Um, and then, I mean, specifically in terms of like product prioritization, um, I mean, I think there's, um, but it's, it's always about kind of, I mean, on a very high level, right? It's always about kind of trade-offs between basically benefits for the user, um, um, costs internally, right? Like how expensive is it to do something? Um, and then some sort of like strategic um, value as well, right? Like, so, I mean, it might make sense to actually start something now, even if the cost or reward doesn't really um, justify it right now, but because we think we should lay the foundation for something that is actually important in six months from now or so. And um, I mean, th that's just on a, on a very high level, which I, I don't think that's anything really magical here. Yeah. Um... I mean, I, I think we could go in, in a lot of directions, especially from a product perspective. I think all of us are, are super passionate about that. Um, and, and also, of course, building the processes. But coming back to your original framework of, I think it was people, processes, product. I think we kind of started from the product perspective now, talked a bit about processes. And coming back to people uh, based on your framework, um, you have now kind of you have you've raised your 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 another round now of course you're looking for people um and you're also looking for people in san francisco and munich which of course is a um a special consideration at at the at the stage you are at, at this point in time since you haven't launched in in germany yet so how do you can how do you structure hiring in general um especially when you have all these different positions in place and you have two different locations where you're hiring how did you approach the decision making around these two locations and how do you identify uh, kind of as a follow-up question, uh, the right people uh, that that actually work with you uh, now on the journey, especially in the early stages. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, first about the the structure. Um, I mean, I think we, yeah, we we made the decision ultimately um, around kind of nine months ago that okay, we do believe um, essentially building out an engineering product focused, um, yeah, um, 
office in, in Munich makes sense. And, and, um, and, and there are different reasons to that. I mean, um, it's really our access to, to, to talent there. I mean, both Francesco and I went to school there. We do believe our network in Munich is still very, very strong. Um, and, and, and obviously also kind of like from a, from a cost perspective, it, it does make sense for us too. And, and I mean, the, the, the amazing, I mean, the talent and, and the access there is just, it's just amazing. Um, and, and we're, we're, yeah, we're having, we're having really amazing people there and, and, um, yeah, like that's, that's just like that, just, um, that's just, that was a very kind of, um, uh, kind of strong signal there. I mean, we, we had a discussion between like Berlin and Munich, but, um, but then Munich kind of won the, won the race ultimately. Why did Munich win? Because of your personal connections, or was there any other reason? Because I think a lot of startups are thinking about these two options at this point. Yeah, I, th I think to be honest, it was it was very tough. It was a tough race, right? I mean, um, Berlin is also I think amazing in terms of like access to talent and 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 the quality of engineers there. Um, ultimately, I, I mean, I do think specifically in our space um, in Munich, you have I would say um, definitely also a couple of more people that are just like really that that come out of like the the other big automotive manufacturers that are kind of like in the let's say bigger automotive kind of ecosystem, um, which, which kind of um, is actually, it's, it's kind of interesting and relevant for us, obviously. And that, that, was, that was a slight factor, but then it was mainly kind of access to, to the challenger. I mean, we're, I mean, we have, I think we have now our third or fourth intern from the CDTM. Um, I mean, it's just um, like, we, we really believe in kind of the, the ecosystem there. Um, and and that, that, that was the stronger factor, yeah. But yeah, it was a tough race. Um, in, in terms of in terms of your other question, in terms of okay, like what are we looking for, right? Like what are we what are what are our criteria criteria here, right? I mean, I, I think there are a couple of things out there. I mean, ultimately, and maybe maybe that's 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 one thing almost to answer also the kind of priority question um, before, like ownership and and I mean I mean extreme ownership, like uh, it's it's definitely one of the things which which we always put out there, right? Like and sp specifically also for the engineers, um, we have this. Um, in our busy engineering um, values, we always we always tell them, hey, like we want engineers to think like full owners, think think like a CEO essentially, right? Like it's it's your job as an engineer to to really make sure that we're actually building the right thing and that um, are we actually are we really building something that brings the business um, forward? And if if you if you basically have doubts here, you need to kind of like you need to challenge the the you need to challenge what you're actually supposed to build, right? And so and that ownership is is, is really big. Um, um, in, 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 the, in the company. I mean, I think on, on a couple of other, I would say kind of like softer things out there. Um, I mean, we're looking for curiosity, willingness to learn, right? Like that intrinsic kind of motivation to, to learn, to be hungry. It's just, I mean, it's, it's so valuable to have people like that in the company. Um, in general, then I would also say um, passion, bias to action, hustle. We're looking for doers, not takers. And I think that's just general attitude that, that you should um, optimize for in a startup. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think one thing you mentioned is extremely important, especially once you start scaling, this cooperation of, in your case, your ops team and the engineering team. In other businesses, it's often the sales team and the engineering team, because there's always this friction of customers like requiring things or the ops team in your case, really like thinking that they need an additional feature or some problem solved. But on the other side, the engineering team has very clear, like, like high level features they want to get done this quarter or maybe like this month and allocating a predefined time to actually solve the ad hoc problems is probably a very good way of circumventing that. And that's also roughly how we are doing it because we noticed that every other way, if you don't have a real structure, leads to a lot of, or can lead to a lot of problems. 
in terms of prioritization. So that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, Max, I think you had a question around hiring. It was. So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's actually the the much much more difficult to to kind of um yeah like check check for these things um compared to the coding challenge or so um it's um I think it's um it's really working in examples, really going deep, asking like asking like ten different levels of follow up questions to like an initial answer, right? Um, as well as then I mean we do retake reference calls like super seriously, like even for even for junior positions, we in general do like at least two reference checks. Um, like we. We and and I mean we it's it's amazing how much you can kind of uncover there and and I mean there are certain ways of kind of asking the right kind of reference check questions for example like um like one example that I always love is kind of like um oh like if if you ask a reference like hey what um you know like they they mentioned they they were struggling with that type of problem back then in the days um and and the important thing is like back then in the days so basically the the kind of interview or like the the reference person assumes that oh. Yeah, yeah, of course they have changed by now. And then, I don't know, I mean, most people actually don't change that much over their career. So you kind of, you can kind of, you can kind of ask reference questions really in, in a smart way that reveal actually a lot about a candidate. Um, just, just maybe that, that was like one, one specific example now. But um, yeah, and then I think maybe, maybe to kind of wrap that up, like other things, um, I mean, and, and also in terms of like how I always give these answers when people ask me about, okay, like what is the kind of, what is the culture like at Kite? And like, yeah, um, I think I think there's this, this combination and I would say that really characterizes how we think and how we work in the team, the characters or like the combination of kind of humbleness and, and ambition on, and, and really that these two things kind of pair together. Um, and, and it's really this kind of, I mean, we all like really this realization of like, hey, we're all, we all know that we don't know a lot. Um, we all know that we're still kind of, um, yeah, beginners and starters in a lot of the things, but we've never done that before. Um, really, that that intrinsic um, motive, like um, realization, right? Like, I don't think we have any kind of room for, like, let's say the the yeah the, the classical arrogant jerk, um, right? Like, I, I think that these people get filtered out pretty pretty quickly. And but then on the other side, having this crazy ambition of like, um, yeah, like like we we do want to work extremely hard, and then we actually believe in kind of like going going out for the stars there and and actually really 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 having that intrinsic drive and, and fighting for things um that that's the, this this combination that's kind of what, what we're looking for in candidates um, um and then maybe maybe one more thing which would really i mean like kind of like theory i guess what um what what i i believe in kind of like the is, is really the kind of like ray dalio framework about kind of you know like um radical transparency radical trust um these are, I mean, these are, I mean, these are not kind of new things. There's nothing like special, but but I do believe it's it's it. These are good good things to kind of these good principles to 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 go after. I would say. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. I think yeah, Ray Ray Dal, you probably just represented what what a lot of people before him outlined in different ways. But I think he had very clear arguments on how he explained culture and what kind of principles organizations should follow in order to to reach a certain culture that is that is also needed and 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 uh, what is needed for for the future. Um, one thing I think that we can now kind of switch pathways to. Um, is also um, a bit more personal to your experience being at, of course, two different universities. They are, uh, so you mentioned that you still have a lot of network uh, at CDTM, which is more as a, a sub-initiative from the, the TU Munich and is very famous for people that are just aspiring entrepreneurs or people that found companies. But you've also spent time in Stanford. And maybe um, 
before we kind of take our pathway into the final recommendations of books and, and things you have on your mind, what are the things that you have learned from actually being in these universities? And, and, and would you generally recommend people to take that experience being at Stanford and or uh, TU Munich as kind of a, a good foundation, a good setup to, to, to pursue an entrepreneurial career in the future? Can I, can I jump in for a second? How do you actually screen for that though, right? Because it's, it's not that easy to screen for these more like soft skills or this personality type compared to just hard skills. Yeah, um, that's, that's not easy to answer. I mean, I think, I mean, I think in general in the US um, and at Stanford, you are, I, I think it's, it's more, um, it's, it's, it's a weird setup. On the one side, there's much more kind of prescriptive kind of project work. And, and so at like, and you're like, you're basically like um, forced to do all these kind of like problem sets, um, which I mean, in, in, in Germany and in TUM, I would say, yeah, you're kind of more just studying for this kind of one final at the end of the quarter and, and nobody really cares about kind of your like problem sets or kind of assignments kind of during the quarter. Um, but, but I think I would say, I would say at Stanford, I mean, you, it's, 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 it's mainly, I, I would say that the kind of like core learnings are really about the, about the network there, right. And about the, about the, the people and kind of what they, um, yeah, like how they, how, how ambitious they are and kind of like how they kind of like push, push your thinking. Right. And, and I think, um, I, I, I do think like the kind of the fact that on, on at Stanford, like you also live on campus and you kind of live, live with your people together. You spend, you spend in general, I would say, more time together with the same people, which kind of is, is a, it's a, um, it's, it's, it's always kind of tricky, right? Like it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's also, it's, it's also non-diverse in some setup um, because you literally kind of like don't break out of the campus like all the time, but then at least um, in that, in that environment, um, you go, you, you're really pushed pretty, pretty heavily from, from these people. And I mean, I think, I think in general, like, like people, and, and I think, I, I don't know if it's too much about the, the university setup, but it's, it definitely also has about, has to do with kind of like US versus kind of like Europe and like startup mindset and, and really um, do, doing things and, and going out for the kind of like big runs. I would say um, really this, this kind of, um, I, I would say in, in general, like the, 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 the kind of inferiority complex at Stanford, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's much more prevalent there, I would say, right? Like, because like, there's, um, you, I mean, it, and it's, it's, it's healthy and unhealthy from, uh, I think from, from, I mean, from both angles, I think, right? Like on the one side, it's healthy because like, I think all these kind of people in your environment that are really smart and that kind of, um, that, that do really interesting things and that do all of that other stuff next to university and that kind of start companies and stuff that, that really pushes you in the right direction. On the other side, it, it is obviously, um, it is, it is, it is also tough, right? I mean, there's always this kind of metaphor of the kind of Stanford duck, which basically says like, okay, the Stanford duck, it's kind of swimming on a lake and from the out, from the surface, it looks kind of like super quiet and perfect and happy, right? And like, um, but they kind of like under the surface is actually like paddling like crazy and, and kind of like just super struggling actually. And so, I mean, that, that is a phenomenon. I think at Stanford, we're like, and it's kind of this inferiority complex, I guess, where um, you, yeah, like, like, actually everybody's only cooking with water and, and everybody's really working hard and struggling and hustling. Um, 
but 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 it is this perception that kind of stresses you out and that uh, kind of like makes you actually um, makes you actually like struggle struggle more. I would say um, I don't know. I mean, this this was not a structured answer to your question, but I think it was kind of some flavor of. I would say the, the environment and that it's it's pretty it's pretty brutal I would say in Stanford but it it definitely kind of it definitely pushes you yeah you know? and it's not for everyone yeah yeah one feeling that I have about these fairly elite institutions especially in the US is that they either accelerate you 10x or they break you so it's it's not as much of a hey we take everyone with us it's this almost like a, a tank of sharks. And if you survive, then you're a very strong person. And if you don't, then uh, that's, that's a problem. I mean, not surviving in the literal sense, but rather in terms of what your, usually your mental health and sometimes the physical health can actually do. Maybe transitioning in the interest of time, because we, we've talked about a lot of things. We know that you're busy and you have a company to build. So let's close it off with a couple of uh, short, quick questions. As a co-founder of a company that is growing quickly and that is hopefully growing even more quickly, what are you doing to actually make sure that you are growing, but also that you have the energy to keep going? Because it's a lot of, it's a lot of stress, it's a lot of time invest. So what are your go-tos to actually make sure that you stay healthy and productive? Yeah, great point. I mean, I think in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of personal growth and, and kind of learning, I would say, I mean, um, I mean, books are great. Um, founder peer groups are great. I mean, I think, I mean, right, like, I think Mike and and I, we can we can definitely kind of like um, subscribe to that. The 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 kind of like just really talking to other founders that um, that are either in the same kind of um, situation or maybe a little bit further ahead. I mean, it's it's incredible value and kind of like can give you a lot of energy back. I would say. I mean, we, um, I have this other word for that, which is always kind of like living your future self. Um, kind of, it's it's kind of like. And, and I, I got that advice from one of one of my advisors about like, hey, really look out for these kind of yeah founders, CEOs, which are kind of which have like a company that's maybe like one or two or three years kind of further ahead to you, and really just talk to them specifically, and like they can oftentimes give you the most kind of relevant and and most yeah advice that is really energetic. Um, and then I mean other things are definitely I mean yeah um, like friends are important. Um, really like some sort of like. Um, uh, yeah, balance to to work. Uh, it's it's important. Um, some sort of physical activity. Um, I'm not. I'm definitely not doing enough of it. Um, but I'll I'll, I'll try it. And um, yeah, it, it definitely it definitely it definitely works. Um, yeah. Okay. Then as the as the last question, if you have like any content that is currently top of your mind, or just something that has really shaped you as a person, it can be a book. It can be a blog. Like. What would you recommend to everyone listening? Should at least take a look at. Yeah. Um, so one of the last books I read was um, um, from from essentially the former Disney CEO Bob Iger. The the book uh, Ride of a Lifetime. Um, it was amazing. It was an amazing book. Um, he really shares a ton of these kind of yeah leadership lessons. I would say um, that kind of I mean he, he had an amazing journey and I mean he transformed Disney completely like kind of like 180 degrees around right. Um, and it's it's kind of I mean I'm also a fan of the kind of like I would say kind of um, OG founder war story books of like yeah like Ben Horowitz kind of like hard things about hard things. What you do is who you are. These types of things. Um, 
and and this is um, and and I think this this goes in a little bit of a different um, or like yeah different and similar direction in terms of um, it's also not a classical kind of startup CEO kind of book, but it is a kind of it is big company um, CEO things, but but there's enough really super highly relevant things in there. Um, yeah, maybe one one more one more kind of recommendation on that side. Um, I'm a really big fan of this guy, Bradford Cross. Um, he's a kind of VC um, SaaS uh, guy in, in San Francisco. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of people don't know him, but I think he has amazing content. I'm, I'm super big, I mean, specifically for kind of any sort of um, SaaS uh, founder out there. Um, I, I really think um, also, I mean, he's really, he's an amazing technical expert in AI and ML. So, so um, I, I think I would always, I'm always recommending his kind of blog. And because a lot of people don't know him, and and so I think he's kind of very much under underrated. Nice. I didn't know him, even though I'm interested in SaaS. So great, uh, great recommendation. I think we haven't had that before. <laughs> no, definitely. I I think I like the name rings the bell, but I can't place it at all. So I'll definitely put it on my reading list. And then also the the Disney book you recommended has been on my reading list for quite some time. So I'll bump it up a couple of Same spots. Here. Same thanks for that. <laughs> and yeah, thanks for taking the time out of your day and spending it with us and telling us about your company, about how you think about building companies philosophically, and then also giving us some recommendations. It was a pleasure. And our fingers are continuously crossed. And we are very, very excited to see how big uh, Kite can get. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. Thanks, Nick.